I'm Sandra, and I'm just the professional your small business was looking for. But you didn't hire me because you didn't use LinkedIn jobs. LinkedIn has professionals you can't find anywhere else, including those who aren't actively looking for a new job, but might be open to the perfect role, like me. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't visit other leading job sites. So if you're not looking on LinkedIn, you'll miss out on great candidates like Sandra. Start hiring professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com slash people today. You don't think that it's time that somebody cared enough to have a dream? Why are you getting so upset? This is not about you. Yes, it is. You are a human affront to all women and I am a woman. At some point, you got to decide for yourself who you are. Can't let nobody make that decision for you. How do you go about getting an exorcism? I beg your pardon? Hi, this is Mark Kermode. Thanks for downloading this Kermode on Film podcast. In this week's edition, we hear the second half of the MK3D live show that I do every month at the South Bank. A couple of weeks ago, we had a couple of guests from that show. We heard from Chiwetel Ejiofor and Simon Amstel. This week, we're going to be hearing from Carol Morley, director of The Falling, whose new film Out of Blue opens in UK cinemas this Friday and composer and producer David Holmes. Now, just a couple of words of warning. I've been trying to get David on the show for a long time. He had a really, really great time. His language is, shall we say, slightly fruity. So just to flag that up in advance. Also to say some of the clips we played at the live show to illustrate David's work were kind of visual. So we've cut them down for the purposes of the podcast, but I think they do still make sense. So coming up in a while, Carol Morley. But first, here is the legendary David Holmes live on stage at the BFI South Bank for MK3D. I said we've got a guest-packed show, and uh, there's somebody I've been trying to get into the sh- on the show for ages and ages. Um, I, he doesn't live around here, so it's going to be slightly difficult. Very, very early on when we were doing this show, I played a clip from Good Vibrations, and uh, which is a film I absolutely love, and I said at some point we will get David Holmes on to talk about it, because David Holmes is a composer and a producer and a director as well. He made a very, very uh, lovely short film. He's just finished making another feature film. He's been doing uh, composition for television and for film, and brilliantly, he has made the journey over here from Belfast. Please welcome to the stage the fabulous David Holmes. David, I'm so pleased to have you here, not least because um, some time ago we did a screening of, of 71 in Cornwall, and you came along and you did a Q&A, and then afterwards there was a gig, and you did a DJ set, and you said, you, you know, that you, you would do a, rock, a rockabilly DJ set, and you played the best rockabilly DJ entirely from 45s, and rockabilly isn't even where you live, it's not even your first love, and you were playing records that I thought only people like Boz Bora owned. So are you just a, a music completist? Um, I am the youngest of ten children. So I inherited so much and when I was just seven years of age I was listening to the Sex Pistols and Gene Vincent and I had this just wealth of music um, in my bedroom. So all my brothers and sisters were like teenagers and I had a sister who lived. She went to art college and lived in London. She arrived in London in 1969 went to Brian Jones's wake, seeing the pistols at the 100 Club. And every Christmas, she would bring a, an extra suitcase full of records and clothes. So we had this amazing education of just incredible culture and uh, that all came from London. And also, growing up in Belfast in the 70s, most of the time, you just weren't allowed out. So the only thing you had was your imagination and three channels. 
and, um, and, a, and a, a shit record player that sounded amazing. Um, and, and then at the beginning of the 80s, you had the introduction of VHS or Betamax. We were VHS. Uh-huh. But musically speaking, you know, and then, you know, it, the brilliant thing about growing up at that time, I'm sure everyone around my age will. How old are you? I'm 50. Okay. I love the way you say <laughs> <laughs> I just turned 50. Oh, congratulations. Just literally just turned. On the 14th of February, yeah. David, you look, you know, I wish I'd looked as good as I you. Look when I look fucking amazing. 50. Yeah, you too. <laughs> <laughs> uh, <laughs> no. Um, <laughs> I'm only joking. Um, <laughs> no, um, you know what? Everyone grew up at that time. The most, the most brilliant thing about then, which is the most shit thing about now, we didn't have the internet. So we just had our imagination, yeah. and it was the decade of the cult. So all my mates were rockabillies, skinheads, punks, mods, people, kids who were into heavy metal, goths, you know, and we all went to the same club. So you got this amazing, amazing education just going to a nightclub with a DJ who had a really open mind, and everyone had their turn to get up on the dance floor, but I was just always... I suppose, like a sponge for music in general. And you used to go into the Good Vibrations store and you said at some point somebody gave you a crate of, of records that was full of treasures. Well, in Belfast, in the, I'm sure it was the same fucking, like everywhere in the UK and Ireland, um, back in the early 80s, the video libraries were in people's houses. It was like the first form of piracy. And you would like rap on the door and you go in and the whole family were sitting there eating their dinner. And then you're just looking through fucking videos. What's that like? You know, and the first two videos Holocaust, that, I, <laughs> that I rented were the Long Good Friday and Quadrophenia. And up until I seen Quadrophenia, well, about a month before Quadrophenia, my father removed all my, you know, I, I, my sister made me a pair of PVC trousers and I had like a, a seditionary's hand-me-down T-shirt for my brother and... I thought I was a punk, you know, <laughs> and uh, I had to do it like when my dad wasn't looking. And then one day after school, we went down smoker's entry. Did anyone have a smoker's entry <laughs> after school? And anyway, bicycle I, sheds. Yeah, yeah. This old woman used to come out and tell us off, and we all mooned. <laughs> but I was the one that get stitched up, <laughs> and the cops came to the door complaining that I'd mooned at this old woman. And my dad took all my punk clothes off me. <laughs> and I, about a month later, I seen Quadrophenia that I, I rented from this someone's house. Yeah. And my life completely changed. And that night, I became the most hardcore mod. <laughs> and that, that was my life uh, right up until about 1985, 86. And I just became obsessed. But one day, I went into Terry Hurley's record shop. I hadn't got a pot to piss in. And I used to just sort of, you know, in Belfast they had this really stupid invention called the bus ticket, where you could just like buy a bus ticket, and then you had like eight dings, as it were. So it was like four sides, and you turned it over. But you know, the classic thing was a double ding. <laughs> so if you if you looked after your bus ticket, it would last you for about a year. <laughs> so I used to sort of go on this journey and go through all the really great record stores in Belfast, starting with Doogie Nights, which was like soundtracks and jazz, yeah. and then Heroes and Villains, which was 
psych and indie and just weird music and he introduced me to all sorts of things like Delia Derbyshire and the, the White Noise and all this like uh, the, you know, um, the London Boys by David Bowie and all these incredible like esoteric records but then the real loud mouth of the show was Terry Hurley who is the centerpiece of Good Vibrations in the record store and one day I walked in there and he just gave me this box of records um, that were just insanely great and signed copies of just old American first pressings of Ride Your Pony by Lee Dorsey and just all this incredible music. I love how much you love records. I want to play a clip from uh, 71, which is a really, really interesting film directed by Andrew Marsh, and um, we'll show the clip and then you can talk about it afterwards, but obviously it's a film set in Belfast in 1971 with an astonishing set of performance. Here we go. So tell me about the music in that scene. I'll be really honest. Um, I did the score to 71 without seeing anything. Wow. You just did it completely from, yeah, from the script? I, I, or? Just from a conversation uh, with Jan Dimash. I, I actually find that to be a really productive way of working because it just frees your mind up and you're not so much sort of tied to the, the visual world of, of what's going on. And it's just a, a conversation. Um, and then I would read the script. But, you know, growing up in Belfast helped. <laughs> and around that time, it's really interesting. A lot of the best films, that have, the three best films ever made about the, 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 Nor the Nor Northern Irish conflict, or however you want to put it, have all been made by Englishmen. Um, Steve McQueen, Hunger, Jan Dimash. Well, Jan's like Algerian, uh, but French, English. Yeah. Um, and Bloody Sunday by Paul Greengrass. Yeah. And I, I don't know why that is, but that piece of music was something that was just like a throwaway thing that I had just sitting in, in my archive. And it just felt right. And I sent it to Jan. And, and you work with a keyboard or a, I mean, how, what, what does it look like when you're, are you? Um, I suppose like the studio was my instrument, yeah. you know, and, and everything in it. Um, I'm a, I make a lot of loops um, from found sound, from synths. Um, I do a lot of manipulation of sounds, and from those loops, develop into actual movements and sections, and and and, and just that slowly but surely develops into a like a like a sound or a or a score or a or a song. You know, I, people ask me how do you make a film score, and the answer is I have no fucking clue. You know, you <laughs> and yet you work with Steven Soderbergh and you know all these. I, I think you just got to feel your way through these things. You know, and uh, you know, film is the most collaborative art form in, uh, in the world. You know, when you have to listen to your director, and then you know if you're working with a great director, they'll also listen to you. And somewhere in between, you find the magic. And um, so I've just been incredibly lucky to work with people like Jan and Stephen. Um, I just did a, a movie with Steven Soderbergh called The Laundromat with Meryl Streep and Gary Oldman. And his direction was, I want you to, um, what did he say? He says, um, I want you to search deep and find your inner unhip white man. <laughs> I was like, all right. <laughs> yeah, that, that old chestnut. <laughs> uh, but I was like, what? Um, and then he just sent me this fucking crazy film score. 
um, from the 70s by uh, this French composer called Claude Bolling, yeah. which was incredibly sophisticated, but incredibly cheesy, which made it incredibly brilliant. And um, I actually didn't see one image and sent him 27 cues, and it was the most animated I've ever heard him. In fact, I'm going to frame the email. Because <laughs> it said, oh my fucking God. You know, and I was like, oh my, how did that happen? You know, so you just got to listen to uh, your director and, um, and, and just find that, that, that magic somewhere. Can we show a clip from Killing Eve? Because obviously Killing Eve is you know, hugely successful, hugely popular. Um, I'll show the clip, then you can talk about it afterwards. So here's a clip from Killing Eve. You are more powerful than any other person because of what you have in here. You're so different. You have something strong. You should be proud. Take the pills. To dignity and death. So Killing Eve has been you know, a huge success. Who are you working with when you're working on Killing Eve? In the studio? Yeah. Or I have got a band called Unloved, and I went to live in Los Angeles for a year. That's the, the longest anyone could live in Los Angeles, but <laughs> I ended up staying for 18 months. But I met this guy called Keith Chancia and his partner, Jade Vincent, and they were creating a night in, in Los Feliz, and they just asked me to come along, and Jade was, you know, sh um, singing, and you know, they they just asked me to, you know, but I produced them, and I said, well, look, why don't we just make a record? And uh, so we went into the studio, which was like the oldest studio in Los Angeles. It was there since 1931, and um, we made this record called Guilty of Love, and it did fuck all, <laughs> like most records. It just sat there and did nothing, and then. Um, I was asked to do Killing Eve, and I love Phoebe Waller-Bridge, like everyone loves her at the minute, and you know, I love Fleabag, and you know, I had a phone conference with them, and you know, I, I, I read the script, um, and just said, you know, this needs a real, like a female voice, and yeah. I sent them the Unlove record, and they fell in love with it, and I think in the first series they licensed 23 of our tracks, and in the second series I think it's probably about 40. Because we have now done another album, but still, you know, we've got 1,500 fans on Instagram. <laughs> well, the last, the last time we were together in Belfast, you gave me the album, and I thought it, it's, it's really, really wonderful, really wonderful. Um, we asked you to, to uh, suggest some clips for things that had influenced you. You chose two clips. The, one, of them is, one of them is from Midnight Cowboy, and I think an awful lot of people about my bought the Midnight Cowboy soundtrack album when it first came out. So the soundtrack was such a big, such a big part of it. Let's just take a, a little look at a scene from very late on in Midnight Cowboy. You said it's it's very personal to you. Why particularly? Um, my mother had this incredible. Uh, record collection. She was just really, you know, 
I mean, she died in 1996, and she was 73. But she, she had 10 children, you know, and grew, like, raised them during the Troubles. Mm. Three jobs, you know, just incredibly, really strong woman, but just really, she was, like, really modern. And uh, I heard that soundtrack from her, you know, but I remember seeing that film in black and white, mm. When I was just a kid, you know, and you know, I knew I shouldn't have been watching it, but it was just fucking blew my mind. Like everything about it, you know, I learned so much from that film. But everything in that film, I like, I related to in a way without actually understanding why. Yeah. And the music was just mind blowing. And I, I think it's probably the first movie where I cried, or I didn't know why I was crying. And there's other things that happened in that movie, sort of just in the south side of my trousers. Um, and I didn't know why that was happening either. And it just the, just everything about it, it was just, in, and it, there's such a, a, a simplicity to it. And um, I actually had, you know, I know Toots um, played the harmonica, but I, I worked with this amazing uh, man called Tommy Morgan. And I was working in Ocean's 13, and. I was running out of ideas, you know. I was like, fuck, what are we going to do? Like, and I, I don't want to repeat myself. And he came into the studio, and he was like 76 years of age, you know. Beer belly. Hair like yours, actually, just slicked back, just old school. Like, he looked amazing. Black belted karate. <laughs> <Okay>. <laughs> and um, I said, so, Tommy, okay. I, I, I played him the inspiration, which was the Elvis comeback special. Yeah, yeah. And I said, check this out. Check out the harmonica. And he just, he just started laughing. He was going, why are you laughing, man? He just, that's me, kid. <laughs> <laughs> so, um, yeah, it just, um, the, the film just works on every single level. David, time is flying away. You chose one more clip, which I want to play, why you play, which we, it was to do with sound design. And we're going to show a very famous clip from The Godfather. Just tell us what is it that we should be looking out for in this clip? Because this isn't a clip with music in it. It's just, this is to do with the sound of the... Well, I just think, you know, people need to, you know, directors and stuff need to have more imagination when it comes to music instead of just bombarding our screens and telling us how to think and how to feel. And I just think this is an incredible example of how you can use sound as music and it's way more effective. And actually the music, the Godfather theme actually doesn't come in to much later. And because of that, it's just so much more effective. Okay. I'll tell you this very, very quickly. When I was making the French Connection documentary, which was uh, Sonny Grosso, who is the, one of the, the cops that, 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 uh, that the French Connection is based on, 
I went to meet him in a restaurant in New York, and he sat down at the table, and he pulled a gun out, and he put it on the table, and I was looking at it, and he said, you recognize that gun? And I said, uh, yeah, I was more just the fact there was a gun on the table. And he said, do you want to touch it? And I went, no. <laughs> Why? And he said, because that's the gun from The Godfather. Because wow. it, he was the, the technical um, supervisor. And that was his police gun. It's short, big handle, short snub. Awesome. And uh, so it was there with, with that gun on the table. I've never been so scared in my whole life. <laughs> um, David, very quickly. So you've just finished. So Normal People is now done? Yeah, Normal People is a film I produced with uh, Liam Neeson and Leslie Manville, which is really bizarre. You know, like, one of my best friends wrote it. I've known him since I was 10. Two of my best friends since the last 25 years directed it. I produced it, did the music, and it's um, an incredible, unbelievable performance by Leslie Manville. It's kind of mind-blowing. When the film is ready, will you come here and come back to MK3D and, and, and talk about it? Because I Absolutely, I really... because the BFI give a shitloads of money to make it. <laughs> <laughs> That's why I love you. Ladies and gentlemen, the fabulous David Holmes. Thank you. Normally, being a little extra might be a bit much, but not when it comes to healthcare. That's why United Healthcare's Health Protector Guard fixed indemnity insurance plans, underwritten by Golden Rule Insurance Company, supplement your primary plan so you manage out-of-pocket costs. Learn more at uh1.com. Burroughs Furniture is built for the way you live. From ensuring easy assembly and disassembly to honoring highly requested new colors for their award-winning seating, they always have their customers in mind. Their modular seating is made out of durable materials to last and grow with you. And with Burrow, you always get fast, free shipping. Get up to 60% off during Burrow's Memorial Day sale at burrow.com slash ACAST. That's burrow.com slash ACAST. Burrow.com slash ACAST. Okay, cracking straight on. On to coming attractions. Here is a trailer for a film which is coming to cinemas in the not-too-distant future about which you should be very excited. What's the story, Mike? Can you explain your place in the universe? I am not the woman people see. We are all stardust. We're following the energy, like a trail of clues, leading closer and closer to this black hole's dark heart. Afraid of the dark, detective. Please welcome to the stage visionary director Carol Morley. It's a communal cup. Oh no! No, no, no! no, no, it's a, no oh, it's a, I thought everyone was drinking no, from no, the same cup. Got, I thought it's terribly unhygienic. Carol, I'm going to ask you oh, to move yeah. slightly in towards. Yeah. That's fine. So, okay. Um, the trailer looks fabulous, and I have to say it's not just the trailer. It's the, I, th I thought the film was really, really thrilling and enigmatic, and I was delighted because you know how much I love The Falling. And there's always a worry when somebody makes a film that you really love, that you think that, you know, will it be as good the next time? And it is. So for people who haven't seen it, I know it's based on a book which I haven't read, but you say the film is very different. What do they need to know about Out of Blue? 
Well, it's a, a radical adaptation of a Martin Amis book uh, called Night Train. But I feel like I've rescued the characters from the book. That's how it started to feel. And everyone was like going to me, why are you doing Martin Amis? Um, and as though I should, there should be something I should be doing elsewhere. But I was just really intrigued by the themes in the book. And it was actually um, a book that Nicholas Rogue had wanted to do. And you um, love Rogue's work, right? Yeah, I mean, not, I don't feel like I, I, I imitate him or anything, but I love his work with time and uh, with place and everything that he, he did, you know. So the fact that he'd wanted to do it made me want to read it. And then I saw things in it that became mine, really. So it's like, I don't know, Martin Amos is going to see it next week. So I either want him to really love it or really hate it, <laughs> as long as he's not indifferent. Um, but, yeah, so it's really, it's a, it, the film begins as a police procedural. Um, so you're on, in, on very familiar ground with Patricia Clarkson as the homicide the detective. It's a murder mystery. It's a murder mystery of a, um, a leading astrophysicist, Jennifer Rotwell. So it begins in, I think, a really familiar place that we're, we, we see a lot of in, in film and television. But then it, it just uh, goes completely elsewhere, my, my treatment of it. Um, and I think it's a detective detecting... Uh, the world, but in the end, she she starts to detect herself. I think that, so it becomes very interior. One of the things I love about the film is that people talk a lot about mystery films, and there's very little mysterious about them. What I loved about Out of Blue is it's properly mysterious. It's like it is a murder mystery, but it's also about time and parallel universes. There's touches of Donnie Darko in there. There's you know hints of Chinatown, and there's all these sort of shattered you know shard like influences. And I literally until. The ver well, actually, right to the end of the movie, I was still trying to figure out exactly what I thought it was, and I can't wait to see it for a second time because I kind of feel yeah. that on a second time round, it almost looked like a different movie. Yeah, it's what we call double your box office because, uh, <laughs> but uh, but the uh, because somebody has already seen it. Well, she's seen it three times and she's coming for a fourth time, uh, so it's already got cult status. It's not even released yet, which is quite cool. But I think it's like when I make a film, well, because. One, you don't get that many opportunities to make them. Yeah. Mind, but so you, I really do. I'm very excited by the privilege and opportunity to make a film, which I think, for me, a film is something in my world that I want to see again and again. Yeah. So it's it's not so, so. I think there's a lot of layers to Outer Blue, and you can in one go get a, a version of that film. But when you see it again, you will get another version of it, and. Uh, people start seeing different things at diff on different occasions, which uh, is really exciting that that's happened because that is really the film is about investigation and, um, and it's as much the audience's investigation as Mike's. So. There's, a, there's a bit at the very beginning when you hear something which you, th you think is a voiceover but then it leads into the first scene and it reminded me, and correct me, it, it reminded me of the opening of A Matter of Life and Death, which is one of my favourite films yeah. of all time. Was that intentional? Yeah. You're the only one that's got that. Yay! <laughs> That's, uh, but I can't exactly remember what I, I, I get. I, I sort of get my head gets filled of stuff, of films and images and lots of things, and then at some point I just let it all go. Yeah. So then I forget where things have originated from or ideas have come from. I just because some of them are from hanging out in homicide departments and real locations, and then others are from films. But yeah, so that was one of my in my book. That was one of the, so the film is opening here how soon? Uh, 29th of March. Okay, fabulous. Yeah. And at, simultaneously, for people who want to get up to speed with your career, 
a whole load of your early work has suddenly been made uh, available online by the BFI. That's correct? Yes, tomorrow. Tomorrow. You can go and watch loads of my early flawed films. Can I show a clip from one of your early films, which yeah. is which is which is a, I mean a really Very revealing, an extraordinary piece of work which you made called the Alcohol Years, in which basically what you did was you went back to Manchester to interview people who had known you during I think what a fairly dark period of your life. Scurrilous. Scurrilous period yeah. of your life. Okay, yeah. it's a really hard film to describe. So let's just have a look at yeah, a clip because it, it speaks about for itself. Yeah. Okay. So. We've not seen each other for ages, Carol. And you came to me wedding month and a half ago. That's the first time I've seen you in God knows how long. I mean, to, to some extent, you, you are a stranger to me again now. And here I am, in front of a camera. Who was Carol Morley? Carol Morley? I think she was a figment of our imagination, wasn't she? It's... It's such, it's such a remarkable, such a remarkable film. Partly because it's very, very open and soul-searching. Partly one of the weird things is there's somebody in that clip that I was in a band with. with Frankie. It all comes back to him. It does. It does. I, I mean, it does. Everything is like linked to you. But I haven't had a cameo uh, in one of your films yet. Yeah. Go, um, <laughs> Not yet. When the fact that Out of the Blue is coming out. Blue, and the, no, there. Out of Blue. I'm yeah, so yeah. sorry. I'm so sorry. It's very fact, important. It is very, very important. Yeah. The fact that Out of Blue is coming out and this this kind of the back catalogue of your stuff. I mean, how important is it that people are kind of familiarise themselves with your stuff? Or I don't think it's important, but it's necessary because, because you make stuff and often, you know, you, you're not in a position where people, you can, you can screen it a lot. So it's just really, ex I think it's exciting to realise at some point where you've been trying to make films for a long time and you eke them out and you make them, that you suddenly have a body of work yeah. and, and somebody could look back at it and see uh, connections and feel a kind of satisfaction. I mean, I couldn't have made the Dreams of a Life without making The Alcohol Years and I couldn't have made Out of Blue without making those films. So I think there is just a, a sense of uh, maybe a view, you know audience satisfaction from seeing the links, but I think each film stands alone. Mm. Yeah. I, I I genuinely think I'm not just saying this. I genuinely yeah. think you're a genius because I think you have That's no. Like, I, seriously, everyone's gone very quiet. They're like, I th I think yeah. your films have a kind of kaleidoscopic sense in which they they're all like different shards of a single body of work. And it was interesting going back and watching the early stuff again yeah. and then seeing Out of Blue, which is so. You know, in some ways, it's kind of, you know, it's fabulously polished and glistening. But all that stuff, all that ground material is all in there, isn't it? It's like it's an ongoing... Well, because I think that I, I feel that making films is an incredible... You know, making stuff, it's an incredible privilege. And the, the fact that I'm in that position is like, I don't just want to show off or be a, di you know, like the director of doing something flashy. It's like want, wanting to say something profound about life you know not not in a political way but just like actually wow cinema and film is such a brilliant medium to to explore um the human condition and and to get inside uh, the, the the human mind and, and the dream state and all of that that's why my films are never social realism because i'm always like trying to get inside and work out um so i think that ultimately what i want to do is just continue to to make films that make people feel connected and emotional from that watch them yeah. uh, and explore the territory that fascinates me. I'm not a genius, though, because then no one will like me. <laughs> <laughs> no one... 
No one. It's a bit weird. But thank you. If people, you know, they want to come and see Out of Blue, and the, you yeah. know, the trailer sort of sets it up in a, in a way which I think is really, really exciting. But there's there's a lot going on in the film. How would you describe it to an audience? If you had to sort of pitch it, what, what kind of film is it, other than just a murder mystery, which it's so much more than that? I think it's a film that. Um it's all Mike's point of view so you, you're either going to trust it or not trust it somebody said to me I, I loved it they said they um, they start, started to watch the film they really disliked Mike Patricia Clarkson's character they really disliked her by the middle they started to feel guilty that they, they disliked her and by the end they loved her so I think you want to really go on, on the journey with her uh, but I, and that's why you're seeing different things because uh, the beginning of the film nearly opens with that line you can tell a lot by looking and it is a film that you want to look at um i think it's i don't like uh i think it is a mystery but it's more a psychological mystery than a a cop mystery if you like but i think you just need to look and there are lots of clues and hidden clues in there when Brexit was happening, I was doing a, an essay for a collection of essays called Goodbye Europe, which they've now reissued. It's called Postcards from Europe because they're not, they don't know where we are anymore. Um, and I got in touch with you to say, because I, you know, I, I was writing about the fact that I thought that British, most British filmmakers consider themselves to be European. And I said... Oh, yeah, I'd you... forgotten you'd asked me that. I didn't, yeah. yeah what you did re... I say? Well, you, your reply was brilliant, typically brilliant. You said um, that, uh, you said, funnily enough, I'm in America at the moment making yeah. this, which yeah. you were, and you said, but I've always considered my films to be European, but somebody described them as weird European. And that was how you <laughs> said that was how you'd like your films to be described as weird European. Okay, well, yeah, definitely weird European, but with a large audience. <laughs> <laughs> because... You, do, you don't want to, like, minimise, minimise. So, uh, but I think that I want... I just want to make films that are, are authentic. That's it. Like, make a film that's authentic to the story. I don't think any of my films look like my last film because mm. I think when I start to make a film, I look at the story and the characters and they tell me how to tell the story and the locations. And so that, I just want to make authentic um, films that are... some, And somehow they all, I think to some extent, do chime with the times. But usually people catch up with them later. Because I've noticed, all, like, with Dreams of Life, they've got some terrible reviews. Not for me. Uh, no, thank you very much. But, and then later, no one seems to dislike it. And it's like, so people catch up a bit. Yeah. So, uh, so I don't know. But I think that... I, I think I met... I don't think weird is how I would describe myself... Some of my friends, but I don't know, I don't know anything about it, but um, all my films. But I think they are taking on a gaze that maybe hasn't been legitimised before. So, um, uh, you know, as a working class woman that, you know, left school at 16, I want to, I don't want to get stuck in a tradition of telling stories about um, marginalised people, you know what I mean, or stuff like that. So I think I just want to... Um, Go on, go forward and look at stories that excite me. Hence, making a Martin Amis book and not something that people thought I would do next. So I, I, I've got my next one up my sleeve. Fantastic. Typist, artist, pirate king. So much. <laughs> well, look, all of Carol's early films are going to go online tomorrow. I will tweet the link when they go live. So I encourage everybody to check them out as preparation for seeing Out of Blue, which opens at the end of the month. I apologise for saying it to you, but I'm going to say it again because I think it's true. I think you are a genius, ladies and gentlemen. Carol, <laughs> well, thank you very much.
There we go, that was Carol Morley live on stage at the BFI South Bank at my MK3D live show. And just to note, because we recorded that show a few weeks ago, when I said on the show that Carol's short films are out tomorrow, obviously they're out now. Meanwhile, Out of Blue, her brilliant new feature film, opens in UK cinemas on Friday. And before that, we heard from the legendary David Holmes. If you like the sound of the MK3D shows, which, as I said, I do every month at the BFI South Bank, then go to the BFI website. You can get tickets there, but bear in mind they do sell out pretty quickly. And if you've enjoyed this podcast, please remember to subscribe. Oh, and tell your friends. Thanks for listening. Keep watching the skies. Normally, being a little extra might be a bit much, but not when it comes to healthcare. That's why United Healthcare's Health Protector Guard fixed indemnity insurance plans, underwritten by Golden Rule Insurance Company, supplement your primary plan so you manage out-of-pocket costs. Learn more at uh1.com.